Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Welcome to the fourth programme in our series, Part Moon, Part Travelling Salesman, Conversations with Ivan Illich. Beginning about 20 years ago, Ivan Illich became widely known for the trenchant criticisms of contemporary institutions which he eventually published in books like Deschooling Society and Medical Nemesis. Many people still remember him mainly in connection with the vogue which these works enjoyed, but for Illich, these early writings were only starting points. As his thinking evolved, he became less interested in these institutions as such, and more interested in the state of mind which made them possible. And what he noticed above all about this modern state of mind is how completely it is penetrated by the assumptions of economics, that resources are scarce, and society a domain of endlessly competing values. He began to oppose a sphere of traditional subsistence in which culture still shapes and limits economic life to a sphere of scarcity in which economic values predominate. He redefined development as the war against subsistence and education as learning under the assumption of scarcity. And he announced, this was around the mid-1970s, that his new project would be a history of scarcity which would show the corrosive effects of this idea on culture. Tonight's programme is about this turn in Illich's thinking. It's written and presented by David Cayley, and it's based on conversations he recorded last year in State College, Pennsylvania, where Illich teaches for part of the year at Penn State University. Critics of economics can generally be assigned to two schools of thought. One wants an alternative economics. The other wants an alternative to economics. Ivan Illich is emphatically a member of the second camp. He doesn't want to make economics more humane or more sensitive to the environment. He wants to drive it to the margins of social life, and he wants to scrap its major assumptions, which, roughly defined, are that people are born needy and that the means to satisfy their needs are inherently scarce. Scarcity, to Illich, is the linchpin of economic society, it defines, for example, the modern mania for education. Instead of assuming that learning is innate and depends only on the existence of an interesting and varied world which we learn from by living in it, it makes the opposite assumption, that the means for learning are scarce and therefore must be constantly pursued in specialized institutions called schools. Scarcity is one of those assumptions that Illich calls a certainty, an idea of which we are so completely convinced that we aren't even aware of having it. It ties into a whole network of related and equally invisible assumptions, such as that the world is composed of resources, or that human beings are bundles of needs, which require for their satisfaction packaged commodities and professional services. It's the assumption of scarcity which makes markets appear to be a natural form. If resources are limited, and wants unlimited, how else would you organize economic life? It's the assumption of scarcity which fuels the relentless expansion of the economy, an economy of schools and social workers as much as of cars and computers. And as the economy expands, Illich says, it sucks the marrow from culture and community. People cease to do for themselves what others now do for them, for a price. Natural competence decays. Institutions expand. This was a story that Illich had already told in his books of the early 70s, 
Now, with his proposed history of scarcity, he wanted to ask how it had happened. How could such a society have come into existence in the first place? One of the first thinkers who pointed Illich towards an answer was the economic historian Karl Polanyi. It was Polanyi's historical research that made Illich aware of just how unusual our modern market-driven economy really is. Aristotle tells the story. Karl Polanyi has beautifully analyzed it. That he was shocked by the idea that in recent times, citizens of Athens behaved like kapilikoi, kapiliki, which means uh, sausage vendors, fried sausage vendors on the forum. They let the prices go up when there's much demand and no more fried sausage available. And they let them drop if they want to sell off the last already slightly burnt rests of sausages. He was deeply worried by the fact that decent, virtuous Athenians behaved that way. Polanyi made me understand that there is nothing natural about the law of demand and supply changing prices. That this is a highly sophisticated technique, that this technique really was invented by Phoenicians, appears in Athens, appears all around the globe, and that marketing must not be confused with trading. Trade, where traders, kind of as diplomats, arrive with products of a foreign land, which we exchange at a politically fixed rate against other goods, are millennia older than merchants who work on markets. Illich understood through Polanyi how sophisticated is the idea of a market which functions on supply and demand and how explosive its social consequences can be. And this led him to formulate a new definition of culture. I would see what other people call culture, I would understand as a unique, typical arrangement to a time and place and group by which marketing relationships, exchange relationships related to things which when scarce go up and when more abundant go down in their price, are kept limited to certain specific places. You may engage in these activities on Saturday when the market is open from 6 in the morning until 12 o'clock, or down at the brothel, or over there at the bar. But otherwise, we don't want any of that. For a couple of millennia since Aristotle, most European cultures remained market-resistant. Markets were carefully regulated and kept in place. The story of Homo economicus, the story of commodity production, not simple commodity production, but as Marx would say, industrial commodity production, capitalist commodity production, is a story of the last 250 years. It brought with it a total transformation of perception of space, for instance. The space of one kingdom is different from the space of another kingdom. 
the measures, the weights, are different here and there. When a good passes from one kingdom to the next, it actually changes in nature. The idea of circulation is absent. The idea that something can return to its source without changing its quality is an idea which becomes thinkable only together with vast commodity circulation around 1680. So I'm speaking about a long history during which a certain number of our current certitudes slowly, slowly take shape. As Illich's study of the evolution of market society proceeded, he became more and more aware of how pervasive the idea of scarcity is, how totally, for example, it pervades even our language. And he began to rethink a language he himself had used in his earlier writings, the language of values, which he now came to see as a hive of hidden economic assumptions. I became increasingly aware what happened when the good was replaced by values? How the transformation of the good into values, of commitment to decision, of question to problem, in that moment reflected an incorporation of the speaker into a sphere of scarcity. A perception that our thoughts and our, our ideas, our time, are scarce means for can, which can be used for either of two or several alternative ends. That value reflects this transition, and I wouldn't dare anymore in an anthropological reflection on the way of life of people to speak about their values. I would rather ask the aesthetic question about the shape in which we perceive the good, the sound in which we address it, the feelings with which we respond to it. For me, the discourse on values is sadly subjective, sadly detached from nature. It's bringing economics, the economic idea, this is a value, but this is a non-value. Make a decision between the two of them. These are three different values. Put them into a precise order, which is something totally different when speaking about the good, which is convertible with being, convertible with the beautiful, convertible, the same thing as the true. Would you say, if I may ask the question, that your wife constitutes a value for you? <laughs> it would be obscene. When you say, I value my children, the question is, how much? In Illich's writings, the sphere of scarcity, of values, is opposed by what he calls the vernacular, the domain in which culture still holds economy at bay. One of the first ways in which the vernacular domain is breached historically, he believes, is through the idea that each of us has, or should have, a single language, a mother tongue, which we must be taught in its single correct form. In pre-modern societies, Illich says, 
vernacular life is marked by the overlapping of many different tongues, none of them privileged and none of them needing to be taught. In fact, he himself acknowledges no mother tongue. Well, I didn't, I didn't have a first language. You already had several government. to begin with. You always spoke Most several. people, yeah, you see, right. most people throughout history haven't learned one language to the exclusion of another language. We have learned to speak. And you speak differently to a peasant and to a shoemaker. You speak differently to your mother, who comes from Burgundy, and to your father, who comes from Swabia. As it happens today in India. You can't tell somebody, ask somebody in India, uh, what is your language? One forgets always that most people were still in the privileged condition of a relative small group of us today who had the advantage of growing up in that world which before the war was called the Balkans, who were brought up mentally in the world where the Austro-Hungarian Empire, with its 17 languages, bordered directly on the, the seat of the Sultan in Istanbul, in Byzance, as my aunt called it always, in Tsarigrad, the place where the emperor sits, the old Russian Slavonic way of referring to it, which also was a multi-people, multi-language empire. The idea of homo monolinguis, one-languaged man, the idea of children having to grow into one system before we confuse them with another mental system has just crept into science as a certainty. This idea I'm trying to upset as a historian, claiming that most people in Africa, in Asia, don't learn languages, we learn how to speak. And so man is made for this. I noticed that there was something happening in Rutgers University at a party, a faculty party after a talk of mine. One professor who looked very serious, somewhat pompous, older than I, asked me for the privilege of seeing me afterwards for a drink. Well, I went to this drink with him, and hemming and hawing, he said to me, Mr. this is a very personal question which I want to ask you. You know I'm a psychologist, but you know, you look quite balanced for a man who has been brought up that multilingual. I said, yes. <laughs> so I went to the library for the next, on the next occasion and looked a little bit for bibliography and multilingualism, and I found out that we were, of course, and we are by now even more, thick books giving you citations, quotations, uh, comments to hundreds of articles on the subject, most of them either deal with multilingualism as a problem or as a privilege which is acquired through people who learn a second and a third language under special circumstances, a privilege which should be shared with the many, completely overlooking the fact that the whole hypothesis that Homo monolinguist, that this assumption about human nature might be a very recent creation related to the creation of nation-states. When Illich began to search for the origins of Homo monolinguis, he was led to the court of Queen Isabella, 
in Spain in 1492, the very moment when Columbus was setting sail. There Illich discovered a grammarian called Antonio Nebrija, and in Nebrija's proposal to his queen to create a new Castilian grammar, Illich found the origins of a modern language. Nebrija approaches the same queen twice, whom also Columbus approached twice. Columbus went the first time there, asking for ships and was thrown out, and he came a second time there and got his ships. Nebrija went the first time to the queen and told the queen that he was, wanted to do something much more important for her reign, namely, create out of the many hablas, the many speech forms of the Spanish peninsula, a language, as much true language as the three languages we have received from God, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. The three languages, Majesty, you can see hanging on top of every crucifix where Pilate had the reason for Jesus' death written on a tablet. In order to do this, Nebricha says to the Queen, he intends to transform the many valuable bits one can find in the mouths of Spaniards into one artifice, which will be the new Castilian, which he intends to create with his grammar. And the Queen, through the mouth of one of her assistants, makes him understand that she doesn't, that she considers this a glorious undertaking but can't quite see the point in it, because she majestically is the ruler over many people, each one in perfect command of his habla, of his speech, of the territory of his speech. Now, she is also the foundress of one of the First Nation States. She's the one who had called in the Inquisition to get rid of these useless nobles on her court and, so, and replaced them by lawyers and technicians. She wants to create an administrative state. She doesn't want to rule, but to govern. The idea of government begins at this very moment, the transformation of rule to government. And so Nebricha says to her, Majesty, in order for your people to obey you as they ought to in this new, under these new circumstances, you must have a means, an instrument, a tool, to address them in one language by which they can hear directly what you say. It is for this reason that with my grammar I will teach them correct speech and also put into your hands a means to give what a ruler owes the people whom he subdues. They need from him law and language. And now with our ships travel west. This was written while Columbus was on his way. You must acquire the power to give to these people the Castilian language in which you can govern them subject them through language.
The difference between vernacular speech and an administered modern language is an important one for Illich. It distinguishes a world in which there is still popular sovereignty over the forms of daily life from a world in which scarcity can become a means of social control. Illich elaborated this distinction in a book called Shadow Work. There he was concerned not just with the popular speech out of which Nebriha wanted to construct a language, but with the threat posed by development to all the things which people grow or make or do for themselves. The war against subsistence, Illich called it. He had always feared that the destruction of subsistence would lead the majority into the squalor of what he called modernized poverty. Now, in the late 70s, he saw a new danger, the vogue that the idea of self-help was beginning to enjoy in international development circles. Self-help, to Illich, was just another way of infecting subsistence with economic assumptions. He illustrated the point with a story in a lecture given in Ottawa in 1977 and broadcast later that year on ideas. U.S. experts in self-help building last year, during the last nine months, have invaded Mexico like missionaries under Cortes and, and like Peace Corps members tried and didn't succeed under Kennedy. About two years ago, an MIT assistant professor in architecture came to Mexico for a vacation with his entirely new camera. A Mexican friend of mine who is also an architect, unfortunately, took this man beyond the Mexican airport, where during the last 12 years, a new city has grown up. From a few huts, it has mushroomed into a community five times the size of Ottawa. My friend wanted to show off, as an architect, the thousands of examples of peasant ingenuity with patterns structures and uses of refuse in building never mentioned in architectural manuals. She, he should not have been surprised that his US colleagues took several hundred rolls of pictures of the brilliant invention that make this two and a half million person slum work. The pictures were analyzed in Cambridge. A course in self-help architecture was launched with a degree. By the end of the year, new-baked US specialists in community architecture were busy teaching people of Ciudad Nezalhuacoyotl their problems, their needs, and their solutions. Illich's objections to the idea of self-help were one of the things which impelled him to write shadow work. The late 70s were a time when a new interest developed in what goes on outside the boundaries of the formal economy. Feminists drew attention to the unpaid work done by women. Economists began to calculate the value of work done in the so-called informal sector, the value added to the economy by people repairing their own homes or looking after their own children. In this colonization of the informal sector, as he called it, Illich saw both danger and potential confusion. Characteristically, he tried to make a crucial distinction between subsistence activities, which are not economic at all, and unpaid work which is actually required by a capitalist economy. The second type he called shadow work.
sometimes, just before the middle of the last century, the idea generalizes that work which is dignified is done by employees who get a paycheck. That kind of work is productive. Any other kind of work is something else. It is reproductive or constitutes an exploitation of the person who does it, an extreme form of exploitation. This idea translated in the situation of the 19th century into a social distinction between the poor males compelled to go out for employed work and the females of the species who have to be protected being put into a domestic sphere where we can engage in other activity, householding, which people like Marx and so on called reproductive activities, activities reproductive of the labor force. One completely overlooked that during a hundred year period, increasingly certain forms of behavior became mandatory, obligatory, without which the commodities produced through wage labor and purchased, brought into the family through the expenditure of wages, from running water to bread, required increasingly more programmed, predetermined inputs in order to be some, become something useful. Commodities were lacking in the labor input, which made them into useful things. Water was brought into the house, true. It was rather cheaply brought into the house. By 1920, half of all American families had an inside toilet and, and shower. One usually thought women didn't have to carry buckets of water up the street anymore. And in addition, families could use more water whenever before, could be cleaner. But as Mrs. Schwartz-Cohen has shown so clearly, and even better, Mrs. Strasser, the amount of work which people henceforth had to, women in the household, had to spend in cleaning bathtubs, washing toilets and bathrooms, running the washing machine, and perhaps going out to earn the money to buy the washing machine, was much larger than women had consumed for water-related activities expected from them and imposed from them in previous societies. This new type of work was what Illich called shadow work. He drew attention to it because he wanted to clarify what he saw as a crucial public choice. With the dream of universal paid employment fading fast for most of the world, he saw that more and more people would have to decide between remaining in the shadow of a commodity-intensive economy and trying to invent new post-economic forms of subsistence. He wanted to support and encourage these new forms by making self-determined subsistence entirely separate from shadow work. The book Shadow Work was Illich's first step towards his proposed history of scarcity. Two years later, in 1982, he took another step 
with an ambitious essay in economic history called simply Gender. This new book argued that the breaking of the traditional gender line, which runs through all pre-modern societies, was the decisive precondition for the establishment of capitalist economies. This argument, like parts of the earlier shadow work, grew out of Illich's eclectic reading in the new literature of women's studies. I ran into an article by Barbara Duden, with a colleague of hers. In this article, <coughs> the author claimed something which by now I think historians take for granted, but which at that moment for me constituted a surprise because I had not seen it <coughs> stated anywhere else by historians for the 19th century. What she stated was that change which others describe as the coming of capitalism and the generalization of a capitalist mode of production, she could describe as, in fact, a polarization of activities between reproductive women and productive men, which also generated an entirely new view about what women and men are, bodily, physically. Men, generators, women, reproductive organisms, or precisely wombs hanging on top of two legs, a pair of legs. I detested the way it was written, it was purple language. But it made a key point. The category of work which men and women can do, tasks defined as work which are done either by a man or by a woman, have a historical beginning. As you very well know, we later on became very close friends and collaborators. But at that moment, I was surprised by the statement and began to read widely into the history of, the, of what was perceived as work in the past. Shadow work resulted. And in shadow work, it in writing this little article, it became clear to me that the history of modern work, or more precisely, the archaeology of that which we call mentally, ideologically work, had not been written so far. Why? Because I observed <clears throat> that no matter which historical society before the 19th century I can look at carefully enough to make such an observation, no matter into which strange so-called primitive culture I move, a line runs through the tools, the toolkit of every one of these societies, separating tools which men may grasp from tools which women can grasp. A line runs through the spaces which are in the house, around the house, in the village, used by the villagers. In some spaces, at some hours, you will find only women. In other spaces, you will find only men. It's possible that at another hour you find men 
in spaces which otherwise are occupied by women. But there will be this demanding gender line which runs through every society. And that, therefore, it is in a traditional society, <coughs> in a pre-capitalist society, impos impossible to speak about abstract work for which one can just hire workers without regarding who they are, men or women. That what other people have described as the coming of capitalism really could be described as what I then defined, a demise of the gender line and the creation of some new, completely new concept, the image of the human worker, of whom half have a bulge in the blue jeans and the other half don't. This is the observation from which I started. I then worked together with a few other people and went through hundreds of books and everywhere found confirmed my suspicion that until quite recently, until the 16th, 17th century, in the church a little bit earlier, the 13th century, there is no talk about human beings. Customs are those of men or those of women. Society is conceived as a, each local community conceived as a dissymmetric complementarity of two fields, which define those who are in them as that society's men and that society's women, that nowhere in two societies the definition is the same. I simply was so surprised, rendered so curious, by what for me at least was a discovery, that I spent a year reflecting on it. Illich's discovery of gender had far-reaching implications, first of all for his history of scarcity. Gender, he came to see, was the great historical antagonist of scarcity. So long as there were two fundamentally distinct but mutually dependent genders, the scope of purely economic principles was limited. Because gendered people were not interchangeable cogs, economic choice was restricted by cultural decisions about who could do what. But the significance of gender for Illich went beyond economic history to the question of knowledge itself. Do we know the world as human beings who are only accidentally sexed, or do we know it differently as men and as women? Is the world of a single homogeneous character, or is it characterized by a fundamental duality of which gender is an expression? These were the deeper questions which Illich's study raised. I became increasingly convinced that the deepest change which I would be able to observe between a pre-scientific, pre-industrial, pre-commodity intensive past and now was the transition from one type of duality to another. It is quite clear that two can be conceived of in two different ways. When I say one, two can mean primarily, emotionally, conceptually, the other, and it can mean one more of the same. It seems that in all pre-literate society, pre-alphabetic societies, 
at least of the West which I can study. The first way of conceiving duality shaped the depth of consciousness. There is me and there is the other. There's the microcosmos, there's the macrocosmos. There's this world and the other world. Here are the living and there are the dead. And in the most profound sense, here I am a man. And these others, women, are shaded for me, muted for me, other for me. That there might be a distant search for unity in which the world will disappear. That the otherness of even in the height of intimacy gave ultimate consistency to, con to what we call today consciousness, to being here. With the 17th century, or certain religious ideas of the 12th century, the human being, the self, the individual, became the model of our thinking. And then an entirely new way of seeing the other came into existence. He's another with a black skin. The post-Cartesian inside is a special zone within the general space. People who speak English are a special group in humanity where others speak French or German. I'm a type of human being who has physical characteristics which are different from the others. You are blonde, I'm dark. You are woman, I'm man. And that this loss of the idea of otherness, this collapse of what, as far as I can see, is constitutive of all traditional language and culture and thought, this tension between dissymmetric complementarities was collapsed into an a priori abstract notion which then finds accidental distinctions. If you're right, and presuming that the loss of gender is not absolute, no. but to the extent that it is lost, then it ought to be fatal to the imagination. First, you say, supposing that the loss is not absolute. The greatest difficulties I encountered then when I wrote the book which you have read <coughs> was how to speak about what I called the rests of gender, which we can recover, which in a very personal relationship of friendship, which must replace what was formerly a culturally defined <laughs> relationship between men and women we become can become conscious of is what makes us able to survive that without the recovery of these gender rests we are really locked in a double ghetto without any access to what makes poetry or imagination between the two of us possible and at the very same time excluded from what we seek in sex society, namely equality.
The idea of the double ghetto, a phrase coined by Barbara Duden, is the heart of Illich's argument. We are not only cut off from a gendered past, he says, we are also cut off from the feminist utopia of sexual equality. This is because, in Illich's view, the presumption of equality creates a competition between men and women, which most women are bound to lose. So long as gender existed, he says, men and women simply couldn't compete with each other. There was no common arena in which the competition could have taken place. They occupied completely different spaces, and therefore the idea of equality couldn't arise. Patriarchy existed in many places, but not sexism. Only with the replacement of gender by sex did the entirely new type of discrimination, which we call sexism, appear. I tried to distinguish between gender, which creates in all societies two fields, two complements which are dissymmetric, and in which I have absolutely no doubt of it. For the thing which disgusts me, usually men in the outside, in the public sphere at least, dominate heavily on women, which I call in European Mediterranean cultures patriarchy, and I call something totally different discrimination, which can exist only where there is a claim that men and women are equals, so that every woman who finds out that she gets a bum deal, or any sociologist who finds out that women as a group get a bum deal, can speak about discrimination. Discrimination happens between, happens where somebody who officially is claimed to be an equal, in fact finds out that she is not treated as, she, as a man in her place would be treated. Gender, as you may already have guessed, was a very controversial book, mainly because of the ways in which it contradicted the claims of the feminist mainstream. Many of the reviews were hostile and derisory. Illich was also attacked by female faculty members at the University of California in Berkeley, where he originally gave the lectures on which the book was based. Their criticisms were later published in a journal called Feminist Issues. A group of senior, seven senior professors of Berkeley organized a winch hunting trial a week after my lectures were over, to which I was invited and was assured from the beginning that while each of them would speak 20 minutes, I would have 10 minutes to answer the seven of them. And I was accused. You know, I know what it means to be treated as a Jew. <laughs> I had exactly the same impression from the exalted feminist professors in Berkeley, treating me not simply as a Jew, but a Jew who had, who had engaged in anti-Aryan explicit activities. The papers were published, as you say, and were sent Somehow a copy was sent to me of the journal, which is one of those journals where you may pay a certain amount and reproduce it. I said to myself, well, gee whiz, that's really the occasion to make people aware of what I have said by making a thousand copies of this journal and send it out. I had the copies made, I had the list made, 
And then I said to myself, no, a gentleman doesn't do this. The women in feminist issues arguing against your position um, point to the fact that gender very frequently occurs under circumstances that are patriarchal and actively misogynistic. Yeah. So there are many gendered societies where the ambiguous complementarity is a bit of a euphemism yeah. right, for uh, suppression, segregation, um, shunning of women yeah. by men. No question. And, and this leads to a question, I think, is this... Is this any better? No. If you carefully read my book, this judgment I leave up to women who have to experience discrimination, and I ask them to make that judgment if they have understood my distinction between patriarchy and discrimination. There's a tremendous difference between being in modern society, for instance, born from poor, poor parents and having learned in school that the reason why I have remained poor is due to my having failed in school. Especially once you understand that if you are born from poor parents, the probability that you fail in school is enormously higher than if you are born from rich parents. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is my belief, as an outside observer, I've never been subject to feminist discrimination, but I say to machista discrimination, that we have, I live in a society in which the traditional Italian, Spanish, French, German, English, patriarchal subjection of women has been compounded with an entirely new, interiorized discrimination, which was unknown previously. And I am angry, or was then at least, deeply angered, furious, at seeing the position of modern woman as worse, as far as I could understand, than the position of women any time before. And I was equally angered, though much less, by the belief of a little bunch of women who believed that by uh, improving their own personal status, by outlawing discrimination, women would be helped. The argument of gender was closely related to Illich's previous writings, as can be seen by his choice of the analogy with schooling to illustrate his point. Feminism, he was saying, was just one more counterproductive strategy for social improvement. But the sensitivity of the subject made the argument hard to hear, and Illich was portrayed by his critics as both a romantic and a reactionary. I'm not endorsing the past. It's past. It's gone. And even less am I endorsing the present. I'm subject to it. I'm in it. But people see an image of a traditional society, a closed society. Yeah. I think they then feel that you're recommending a return to a closed society. I think they don't have the image I'm of a new commons. I'm neither a, neither a romantic, nor a Luddite, nor an utopian. I'm telling them, please look. Try to understand how these people lived, felt, laughed, cried, moaned, 
shouted, fought, bit each other. Look at it. Believe me, that's how people lived here. And somewhere else we lived in a very different way. In hundreds of different ways. There were certain commonalities to them. No matter how we lived, they had at least this one assumption, which I'm discussing in, at this moment, namely gender. But then look at how we live. We don't have the assumption about gender. We can't go back to it. I'm not endorsing the way I live now. I find it, I personally find much of it terribly sad. I end my book with that sentence about sadness. I mean, I said quite clearly when I end the book, I have no strategy to offer. The book is not written with strategic intent. I refuse to speculate on the probabilities of any cure to the regime of sex. That's not my task. Each one of us will have to invent in friendship, in which I believe his own anodyne medicine or ray of hope. I shall not allow the shadow of some brilliant future, of something which is to come, to fall on the concepts with which I try to grasp what is and what has been. I am not one to dream about a fully sexed, totally degendered population of cyborgs, <laughs> cybernetic organisms. I look backwards to a sad loss of a kind of socially perceiving duality, which is gone. I have no fantasies about it coming back. In the concluding passage of gender, Illich also sounds an optimistic note. I strongly suspect, he says, that a contemporary art of living can be recovered. This is the note that I think Illich's critics often miss. Because he takes the past seriously, which so few of us now do, and because he refuses to speculate about the future, believing that all our hopes center on the possibility of our becoming fully alive to the present, Illich is sometimes taken for a less hopeful person than he actually is. Once, thinking over all that he believes we have lost through becoming an economic society, I asked him whether he thought people today had to live completely in the dark. No, he said, be a candle in the dark. And then he told me this story about his friend and teacher, Elder Camara, the former Archbishop of Recife in northeastern Brazil. I remember being with him in the Palacio San Joaquin, when he had just founded the, bishop, the world's first bishops' conference to oppose Rome. But totally at the service of the Pope, as he always insisted. And we were living together there. This must have been 62. And he had an appointment with a general. And he said to me, Ivan, I want you to sit in the back of the room while I have this appointment one of the founding fathers of Pro Familia in Brazil. Later on, one of the most cruel torturers. Elder already knew him, knew what would happen. 
and after half an hour he let this general out of his study and kind of flopped down on a chair next to me. Complete silence. And then he looks at me and says, Even you must never give up. Somewhere beneath the ashes. As long as that person is alive, there is a little bit of remaining fire. And all our task is, and he put his hands, uh, his, his, his uh, funny, skinny hands around his mouth and blew and said, you must blow, carefully, very carefully, blow and blow. You'll see it lightens up. If it takes fire again or not, you mustn't worry. All you have to do is to blow. Part moon, part traveling salesman. Conversations with Ivan Illich concludes next Tuesday evening. The series is written and presented by David Cayley, Technical Operations, John Maronowicz, Production Assistants, Brian Hickey and Gail Brownell. Producer, Jill Eisen. Ivan Illich has given his permission to offer a printed transcript of this five-part series. Send a check or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Illich, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. We also have a free reading list. And you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Thank you.